So last August, uh, our family took a huge road trip across the western United States, and and we went all the way down to the uh, border of Texas and Mexico, and then back up around through uh, Nevada and California, and all the way back up. And the main purpose of that trip was to go to my graduation from my master's program in Abilene, Texas. But we also decided to cram in a whole bunch of other stuff, too. And, and so we crammed in a bunch of family visits and sightseeing and a whole lot of things, including meeting up um, with my parents for a couple of days in Denver. And then they went down with us uh, to Texas for the graduation. And it was the first time that I had been back to my hometown uh, since before we moved here in 2012. So it had been a while since I'd been back to Denver. And there is something that's kind of surreal if you've, ever ha- if you've ever done this, about walking back into your childhood home or, or uh, back to your old school. And, and that summer actually was the last summer that um, my high school, Denver Christian High School, they had officially moved to a new campus and they had closed up the old one that I had attended. And so I took a drive by there while I was there to see it one more time before they tore everything down and spent some time reminiscing over the the fields that I played in and practiced football and the lawns that I sat on and had lunch every day with my friends and and the old gymnasium where we used to have our chapel and our pep rallies uh you know it's it's the same but it's different because I'm different um it's the same with my childhood home dad's remodeled uh since then and my old room has a new paint job and new furniture and and my NFL team logo curtains are conspicuously absent now. I don't know why, but they're gone. Um, I felt the same feeling walking into Littleton Church of Christ. Uh, it's the church that I grew up in. Um, I actually helped build it, um, literally, in a way. Um, when, we were about five, when I was about five or six, we were building that new building. And I remember most of my Saturdays were going there with my dad and alternating between eating the free donuts and being the person who gives, like, all the tools and takes this to this person and takes that to that person and, you know, like, running around, you know, helping build this church. And, and so it's been a part of my life for as long as things like my home and my school. And yet I get in there, and, and some things have definitely changed, yet so many things are the same. But, I mean, they've had big remodeling projects. They've added on a new youth and children's wing. The baptistry in the auditorium is switched over to the other side from where it was, um, you know, when I, when I was, you know, watching my friends from youth group get baptized in it. There's a lot, there's still a lot familiar when I walk in, but re- what really has made it different is, is, that, is that the people have changed. There are people that I, I, that I know that are still there, but a lot of them have gone along to be with the Lord, or some of them have moved and are at other congregations, and there's a whole lot of new people that have come in that have no idea who I am, and, and no idea that I grew up there, you know, so you go back and you say, oh, hi, who are you? And, I, you know, I treat you like you're like a visitor, and you're like, yes, I am like a visitor. But at the same time, like, I'm Monty's kid. And they're like, oh, you're Monty's kid. All right. Who's Monty? You know, and you're like, okay, never mind. Um, let's, let's work further, you know. Yeah. But I, I guess the point is, is if I were to walk in and expect things to be the same as they were when I was 18, when I went to college, when I left Denver, where I had lived you know, my entire life up until that point, I would be really, really disappointed. As the folks, you know, I mean, and I guess if the folks there expected me to be the same as I was when I left when I was 18, they would be really disappointed. Nobody really expects that. And yet there are, kind of, there are parts of it where you kind of feel 
that you're still there, but yet so much has changed. Growth and change are kind of a part of the equation with life. And we, we intrinsically know this, but it's still hard to accept, and it's still hard to adapt when we are asked to do those things. I still have an image in my head of how my home's supposed to look. I still have an image in my head of how my church was. And those things are, those things are, are, they interplay with the way things are now, right? And I think this idea has a lot to do with both the text in Luke that we're looking at today and the Holy Spirit in general as we're, as we're looking at this idea of, of who is he and how does he work and how do we know him. We like to think of God as stable and unchanging. He is a rock. He is a refuge. He is a fortress. He is faithful and true. All of that is accurate. And we think of this in regard to Jesus as well. The writer of Hebrews says that that Jesus, he proclaims him, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we take shelter in that idea. The scope of redemption isn't going to change. The power of Christ to save is not going to be there one day and then be gone the next. I need that consistency. It's good and it's true. It's good to anchor myself in those things. And then there's the Spirit. And he seems to be the odd duck here. He's the one whom Jesus says about in John 3, he blows this way and that way, and you don't know where he comes from or where he goes. So it is with those who are, you know, if the wind is like this, so it is with those who are the children of the Spirit of God. And you go, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? The Spirit seems to be constantly changing and challenging things throughout Scripture, especially in the account of Luke and Acts, and it doesn't, he doesn't sound very consistent. He actually sounds a little bit scary because of that. And maybe that's why we don't talk about the Spirit as much as we do about the Father and the Son. The idea that he seems so overtly fluid sometimes that, that we're going to misread or we're going to misrepresent him. And so we, we, we have some apprehension about that. And I would challenge us in this thinking, both in the idea that the Spirit is the only, is, is this somehow this ever-morphing bottled chaos, okay? I would challenge us with that idea, but I would also challenge us with the mind, the idea that the Father and the Son are somehow static. God changes his mind all the time in Scripture. Read the Old Testament. Sometimes he is getting ready to do one thing, and then somebody like Moses or Abraham has a conversation with him, and he goes, okay, you know what, never mind. Yeah, all right, never mind. We'll not do that. We'll do this. And, and the son as well, like the, the same writer of Hebrews that talks about this unchanging Jesus also talks about him learning and being perfected by what he endured here so that he could be my high priest, so that he could be your advocate to the Father. Jesus learns and he grows and is changed in order to be the all-sufficient high priest. See, God is not only a living being in all of his realities as Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the most alive thing in our understanding. And he is characterized by the movement and the growth that he has placed in all of creation. And we need to accept that as well. So while he, is both, he has these things that are stable and unchanging that we can anchor ourselves in, we also need to be realizing the fact that he is also moving and growing and is, and is going somewhere. 
He's not linear. He's not, you know, he's, he's outside of time, but he's still moving somewhere. And he's asking us to move somewhere with him. And to know God, especially the Spirit, is to experience all of that movement and growth in our lives along with consistency and, and foundation together. He's God, after all. He's big enough to have both. And our reading this morning is kind of a homecoming of sorts that, that kind of takes this, this idea of, of God being foundational and God being growing and moving and kind of puts them together in a really interesting way. After Jesus' ordeal in the wilderness, he comes back out into the, into the region of Galilee and he is empowered and he is filled with the Spirit. And Luke kind of says there's this, there's this ministry that begins to start up where he's moving around in Galilee and he's teaching and he's healing and he's doing these things. And, and, and there is just an immensely positive response to what Jesus is up to. His identity is secure in the Father and now it is time to minister out of that identity through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Luke uses the first half of this passage, especially the reading from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 that Jesus does here, as a summary, kind of like this focal point that's going to help us keep the big picture in mind and, and help set us up for what Jesus is going to do as he initiates this public ministry in Galilee. Luke keeps doing this over and over again through Luke and Acts. We're going to look at him doing it again in chapter 7, verses 22 and 23 here in a minute. But all of these summaries of, of Luke seem to do the same thing. They're reminding us of the same things. They're reminding us of who Jesus is. They're reminding us of what his ministry consists of. They're reminding us of what his followers will be and what they will do. And they remind us of what the response of the world is going to be to both Jesus and his church. And so Luke reminds us right away, like I said, the Spirit is the driving force behind the acts of Jesus. In his ministry in Galilee and beyond, Jesus is the epitome of what Paul describes as walking in step with the Spirit of God. He is listening, he is moving, he is working, he is proclaiming all of it intentionally every step of the way. And more than that, though, Luke reminds us that all Jesus is going to do is chained to a greater purpose. And all that the Spirit is doing is chained to a greater purpose. And, and we see this spread and shot all throughout Scripture. The Holy Spirit is always moving with a static or, or consistent goal in mind. The goal never changes, and the goal is this, the proclamation of the good news. The proclamation of the good news of the Father to creation. That he is redeeming. He is saving. He is faithful. There's never a time you see the Spirit working that the Spirit is not moving toward that end. And so there's never a time that Jesus is moving that he's not moving toward that end. And so all of, all of what we're going to see and all of what we should experience even in our lives in the movement of the Spirit is chained to the greater idea of the proclamation of the gospel. Whether it's to me or whether it's through me, there is never a point at which the Spirit of God is going to be at work in my life that it is not tied to the proclamation of the gospel. And that is a good foundation for us to rest on when we are asking questions of the Spirit. Because we can always come back to, is this tied to the proclamation of the gospel or not? If it's not, then I really, really ought to check myself before I just go attributing it to the Spirit of God. 
That's a good, it's a good rule of thumb because we see it all the way through the scriptures. And the first words that Jesus is publicly going to speak in Luke's gospel, they not only proclaim the fulfillment of Messiah in him, but they define what that gospel truly is, what it means to be anointed with the Spirit as Messiah. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, it's a servant song. And it makes it clear that in Jesus, Messiah is the one who will be filled with the Spirit for the purpose of bringing reality to the longing and the hope of those who are poor and in need. Those who are in need, those who are oppressed, those who are imprisoned, whether that is physically or economically or spiritually or what have you. And not only that, he is also going to usher in the amnesty and the liberation and the restoration that's associated with the idea of the year of Jubilee back in Leviticus 25, where what has been wronged is going to be made right. What is out of balance and what is in debt is going to be put back right and full again. That what is broken is going to be restored in this world. And right on the heels of that proclamation of Isaiah, he says, today... This is fulfilled in your hearing. Someday is now today. And throughout all of Luke and Acts, we're going to see the same thing. There is never a time where today is allowed to slip back into yesterday. That fulfillment of what the Spirit is doing through Jesus and the church is always fresh, always new. It always stays in today. And it's also never allowed to slip away into some nebulous someday. It's always what God is doing right now. It's always that God is changing right now. It's, all that God, it's always that the Spirit of the Lord is working right now and is moving right now. And I think the reason that that is so important is because they, it keeps the urgency and the freshness of the gospel ready in the minds of the church then and in the minds of us, the church now. The working of the Spirit, a lot of times we, we, have, we have failed to bridge the gap of, of thousands of years. I mean, even have come up with really eloquent, logical puzzles as to why... Well, we saw this back then, but we don't see this now. I've heard those arguments. And what I say is, is that it fails to keep, it fails to keep the today of, of, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit anchored in our lives. It allows it to slip back into, into ancient history, something that's not relevant, something that's not impactful anymore. It, it, fails to, it fails to keep us living in the tension between what God has done and what we know God is going to fulfill someday and actually lets us know that today is actually a part of yesterday and someday. It's really, really easy to kind of become untethered from that and kind of live in this vacuum where we really don't know what God's doing, where we really don't have a sense of where God's going with all of this. The Holy Spirit is designed to, to reunite us with the ongoing story of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ every day. That the poor are being made whole. That the oppressed are being freed. That the liberation, the restoration, the redemption that we need is coming about day by day, even when it doesn't look like it.
the hope and the power of the gospel is the spirit and the spirit is the one who fuels it and it is always fresh and it is always moving and it is always present and we can't forget that now what's interesting to me is how quickly things go sideways in this exchange between <laughs> between Jesus and his hometown church okay and that seems to be another thing that Luke wants to keep up in the front of our minds as we think about this spirit-empowered ministry of Jesus. There is an initial, you know, first off, Luke sets it up with that, that all around there's been nothing but positive response to Jesus thus far. It's obvious there's been some ministry going before he gets to Nazareth and makes this proclamation and says, you know, this, this, this call of Messiah, this identity of Messiah is fulfilled in me in your hearing today. And there's an initial reaction of amazement and delight among Jesus' hometown, but a few verses later, the hometown crowd is now an angry mob getting ready to throw him off a cliff. What happened? And once again, I think it starts with contested identity. Isn't this Joseph's kid? How did a carpenter become a rabbi all of a sudden? Much, much less one that's making claims to being the Messiah. See, the Spirit is changing Jesus whether people around him realize it or not. It's refining and clarifying his purpose and bringing the anointedness of the good news to light in him. It's always been there, but it's bringing it up and bringing it to the surface. And those who are familiar with him, maybe those who expect a certain privilege because of how familiar they are with him, actually find themselves at a disadvantage rather than an advantage. Luke shows us through Jesus' response to them, not only has Jesus been doing ministry, like I said, after coming out of the wilderness in, in Galilee and Capernaum before this exchange with the Nazareth synagogue, but that if this hometown expects this extraordinary show of power that he's been doing out there, that may be a misplaced expectation. If you expect privilege because of your familiarity with Jesus, you are going to be disappointed. Think it, chew on that for a second. I think sometimes we think, I've walked with Jesus for years. I know him. You know, shouldn't, shouldn't there be a little bit of, I don't know, tenure that goes with that? seniority that goes with that? I don't know. But I think there is a difference between being intimately familiar with Jesus and being comfortably familiar with Jesus. And I think this is this is this is where things really, really um, get difficult for the synagogue in Nazareth and where things can get difficult for us is if we, we've, we've traded this idea of being intimately familiar with Jesus and intimately familiar with the Spirit to being comfortably familiar with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, especially the Spirit. See, I don't think that expectation or that privilege or that familiarity is enough to set things off by itself, but when it gets married to another error, then it grows over to the breaking point. And I think it's this. What really sets everyone in Nazareth off isn't just that Jesus... And by extension, the spirit that's anointing him with power isn't just that Jesus won't cater to their wishes or won't, won't give them, like, better status 
because they're familiar with him, because they know him, because they've been his hometown church people his whole life. He makes it clear that God's definition of who the recipients of the gospel are is wider and more expansive than they're ready for. Jesus tells them two stories using material from their own scripture. One of the ones that Peg read to the kids today about the widow out in Zarephath. And another one about Naaman, the Syrian general who's a leper and needs healing. And and his point is, is that the trajectory of the good news is heading in a wider direction than they might expect. There were so many widows during the famine in Israel when Elijah opposed King Ahab. But the one who received him and the one who was blessed was a widow from outside of Israel in the Gentile town. And likewise, Elisha may have countered many, many people who had leprosy or diseases that needed healing, but it was the Syrian general, the, the, the general of the army of the enemy, who believed the words of his Israeli slave girl, who, who by the way, was actually being Israel by sharing the good news of God even in her oppressed state. He responds, he's healed of the disease. And you have to understand the geography and the history here and, and to understand how much of a shock and frankly how much of an offense in some ways this sounds to the folks who have known Jesus his whole life. See, Nazareth is this small agrarian hamlet, town. There's not a lot there. And it would have been primarily Jewish farmers and Jewish tradesmen. And most of them, due to economic circumstances, most of them are working land that used to be in their family. It was given to them by God to their forefathers. But it's been taxed and it's been tariffed and it's been bled dry into receivership by the wealthy city dwellers and the Romans and the Greeks and the other Gentiles that empower them. And where do these people live? They live down the road in Capernaum. That's the big city. And Jesus basically tells his hometown that their expectation of political and economic liberation and, and freedom on their terms is misplaced. That is actually their oppressors who are the ones who are the ones who are oppressed. And that unless they're willing to reorient their idea of what Messiah is and what the good news is, that they're actually going to find themselves outside of that good news. It smacks a betrayal. Hang on now, isn't this Joseph's kid? We raised him from a well. We made him one of us. Even though there's a question of whether he's even family or not. And after all this, not only is he cutting us out, he's taking our gospel and he's going and giving it to those people. Blasphemy. You've got to understand how many hopes and dreams and desires have been hanging on the phrase, when Messiah comes. And how the truth of the gospel and the ushering of the age of redemption that Jesus proclaims. And more than all of that, the authority and the will and the spirit empowering all of that is actually changing and even negating some of those desires. Asking people to discard them and accept different ones. And how hard that is. You have to understand that to get the sense of betrayal and even resentment that those who will not let their hearts be softened by that truth feel right now. And they actually respond by attempting to stone Jesus. I don't know if you realize that, but throwing a person against the rocks is as good as throwing rocks against the person. 
And it just reminds me that anger and violence are the last defense of people that are made to face the truth of misplaced traditions that they've long defended and embraced. And that possibility is as fresh for the church today as it was for the synagogue in Nazareth. If we refuse to be softened in our understanding toward God's spirit. Church, we need to realize that there's a lot of frustration that comes from living the Christian life not realizing that we're God's beloved children. We talked about that last week. But there's just as much frustration and anger that can mar our lives as disciples, as children, if we make the mistake of the synagogue in Nazareth and think that the presence and the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit exist primarily for our benefit. The Holy Spirit's purpose of indwelling in you and empowering you and filling you is not so that you can be filled and empowered and full of the Holy Spirit. It's not an end in of itself. The reason that the Holy Spirit does all of those things in you and me is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? If, if I'm if I'm not completely bought into that idea, okay, then I'm going to actually find myself at odds with what the Spirit is doing in me. That is not a good place to be because that does bring a lot of anger and that does bring a lot of frustration. And see, the, the interesting thing is, is I love that it's not just a hard p- pill to swallow for the, for the hometown church. It's a hard pill to swallow for... John the Baptist, too. Luke inserts another summary, mirroring Isaiah's 61 proclamation in Luke 7, 22 and 23, if you flip over there, as Jesus responds to John's question from prison, are you the one who is to come, or are we supposed to expect somebody else? And we've already talked about this story before a couple of times, how, how reversed Fortunes. This, this, this question is partly born of the fact that John is in prison. Reverse fortune and jail time and disappointed hopes can erode faith and seek affirmation. But Luke has John asking an even deeper question here. Rather than asking for help, rather than trying to prod Jesus into some public political declaration of who he is, this instead becomes a question of expectation versus reality. John's already heard everything Jesus is doing. Blind See, lepers healed, deaf hearing, dead raised to life. Jesus is doing everything that he said he was going to do when he quoted Isaiah 61 back in Nazareth. The question's not, are you Messiah? But is this what Messiah's really supposed to do? Can someone who seems to be spending all their time and energy and power on those who supposedly shouldn't belong, the dead, the very poor, the diseased, the outcast, the acknowledged violator of God's law, is that the one who's truly empowered by the Spirit to be the Messiah of God? Are you really the one, or are we supposed to expect someone else? Because this is not matching with the expectations. Even for John the Baptist. Even for John the Baptist. And Jesus' answer seems to be even more open-ended. And I think that's on purpose. 
He just restates that fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And then he says, blessed is the one who doesn't get tripped up by me being what Messiah is called to be. Blessed are you if you can swallow that pill, John. And to me, I think there's something really significant here in the fact that there is an open end, like I said, that even John the Baptist has to come to terms with Jesus as Messiah not looking exactly like he planned. That Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, doing everything that God has intended him to do, does not look exactly like he planned. Even the voice crying out in the wilderness, who was led by the Spirit to call Israel to repentance, is being stretched by the gospel of that same Spirit that he asked people to repent and accept. John's repentant message was out with the old age, repent and prepare the way for the Spirit. And Jesus is, the Spirit is here and is moving with a new age of redemption. And now even John the baptizer has to cross that gap and undergo that change himself. Church, I think it's as dangerous for us to keep the Spirit at arm's length and allow him to stay undefined and nebulous. That's, that's so dangerous. But it is just as dangerous for us to box him in and tell him how he will or will not operate especially as it applies to the gospel. Like old wineskins, Jesus says, if we're rigid in our hearts, we're not going to be able to hold up under the transformation that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts in order to proclaim the gospel through us. We need to be softened again. We need to stop jumping immediately in our understandings to what the Spirit does or does not do. We instead need to start to understand who he is and what his desires are for us first. Nazareth, even John, they had a lot of familiarity. But like I said, there's a big gap between the familiarity of comfort and the familiarity of seeking to intimately know and be known. Those are two very different things. And especially intimately know and being known so that we can partner with the Spirit. When we say that Jesus is Messiah, we need to realize a couple of things. First, we are saying that in his ministry, what we see, the miracles, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, the whole thing, we are seeing what God desires to do in the world, what the reign of God's spirit really looks like when we say that he's anointed, when we say he's Messiah. But that also means we're saying that as the church, adopted into God, empowered by that same spirit to follow in Jesus' footsteps, that that is what we should do. That we should take the same attitudes. That we will have the same purpose. And that we will go about it in the same way as Jesus. Because we're being led by the same spirit. And that's not only going to be uncomfortable sometimes, it's going to be earth-shaking sometimes. The one who is hurting you is the one who needs you to proclaim the Holy Spirit of God to them. The one who annoys or aggravates or offends you the most is the one who needs to know the good news. The person who seems the least likely to deserve the time and the attention and the power 
that the Spirit is giving you is the one who needs those things the most. The person who is completely unable to do anything for you in return is the one that you're called to sacrifice for. The one that you're called to spend yourself for. After all, we who were by nature enemies of God and children of wrath, okay, says Paul, are now because of the Spirit children of God because Jesus was willing to do all of those things for us. And so the challenge in our hearts today and every day is to know that the Holy Spirit inhabits us. But more than that, to be willing to be stretched by his desires and his plans. That's the challenge. The challenge is that you and I, just like our Savior, are called not to go elsewhere because we're rejected, but to be rejected sometimes because we choose to go elsewhere instead of where it's comfortable and where it's easy. We're called to spread the gospel far and wide to people who don't deserve it, to make it known to those who aren't like us, but to let them know that they are actually like us, that they're recipients of that good news and that hope that comes with it, that they also are God's beloved. And so let us be empowered for that purpose. Most of all, let our, let our hearts be softened for the way it's going to change us and stretch our expectations as we move further into our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how he works. Let's pray. Father, it is a it is an immense task that you put in front of us. Um, not not to do this ourselves because that's not that's not what this is about. Actually, we we can we can do no good thing apart from your Spirit, Lord. But it is an immense task to allow ourselves to be surrendered like your son was surrendered to your will and to your spirit. So help us. Because there are times where we want to kick back against it and there, there are going to be times where we want to box you in and say, you can, you can go here with me, but you can't go wherever. Here, but no further. And Lord, change our will. Soften our hearts. Allow our souls to be stretched to be filled with the enormity of who you are, who your Holy Spirit is, and what you desire to do in proclaiming the gospel to the whole world. Help us not to become hard. Help us not to become comfortably familiar, Lord. Let us keep seeking to be intimately knowing you and being known by you so that you can do everything you desire to do in us and through us. Lord, more than anything, we pray that anything we learn about you and anything that we, that we put into practice, that it is going to have one goal and one goal only, that it will bring you glory through the praise and the proclamation of your good news. That you have called us your children, all of us. And that you love us and you take great joy in us. By the power of your spirit and the person of your son, we pray.